welcome back to another episode of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast. So, episode 52. This will be a podcast focusing primarily on Chardonnay. Randy is the wine master for Kendall Jackson Wines. He oversees all the production with their their various lines, and uh, Chardonnay is one of their most prominent and most successful grapes that they that they are a part of. And uh, it is a, a conversation that, as a lot of people know, it's a polarizing polarizing grape. And uh, 25 years ago, there was an article that came out that started this whole ABC acronym with with Chardonnay. And back in the day. There was a big push with uh, calling it anything but Chard. And uh, back in the day with the rise of California Chardonnay and, and specific winemaking of, of Chardonnay, uh, the the reviews or the, the article wasn't painting a, a positive light. And uh, so we discussed that a little bit. We discuss kind of how he got into wines. And it's quite a quite a fun story actually to listen to him talk, especially given his uh, his history in wine and, and the amount of years he spent in wine. So to uh, to get into a bit of his of his history and some of his stories is, is a lot of fun. And uh, we actually uh, we we actually talk. He's on the way back between. He's just hit a few vineyards and he's just on the way back home. And uh, he's actually bless his heart. He's pulled over to the side of the road. So we can have this conversation, and uh, he's just finished checking out a few a few vineyards, and uh, he's on his way home, and he pulls over, and we have a conversation. So let's let's get right into it. I was down in Santa Barbara County this morning, and yet all day yesterday, and today spent most of the time in the vineyards in Monterey, heading home actually right now. Lovely. Santa Barbara is is now that is such a great area now for Pinot and stuff and, and Chardonnay. No, it's fantastic. Uh, it is the, um, it has that great cool growing climate there, you know, similar to Monterey, but, but I think that um, Santa Barbara is for Chardonnay and Pinot and maybe a kiss of Syrah where in, in Monterey you have a Chardonnay, Pinot, little, little Riesling going on there. One of my favorites, um, uh, is the Rashpar's wine that they're making, the Domaine de la Cote, and just the work that they're doing in that area. Uh-huh. Yeah, they've got some good good stuff coming. I actually have your um, Kendall Jackson's uh, Chardonnay in front of me right now as we speak. Oh, that's great. It's funny. It's it's a wine that a lot of people have have grown up with over the last, you know, the last couple decades, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's actually it's kind of become a standard, I think, for a lot of people, and and we've grown along with it, and everybody's grown along along with us. And one of the fun things about the wine is really the um, the fact that you know it's 100% coastal, it's 100% Chardonnay, and predominantly from our own vineyards, you know, 80, 85% from our own grapes, and then we have these sort of ratios up and down the coast of, of acres or hectares or what, whatever, however you want to want to count them, which kind of helps with the consistency and the same growers for that other sort of 15 or so percent. And we love our barrels so much so that we have, we're 
part owner of a stave mill over in France to guarantee the quality there. So we love the barrels for the barrel fermentation character. You know, and it's, it doesn't have a whole lot of new oak, but it's it's that character that you get when you ferment uh, Chardonnay in, in a barrel, kind of builds out that, that mid palate, which is incredibly important. And then of course, if you do ferment in a barrel, you get the, 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 opportunity to age it on the same leaves that, that were that, that from the yeast uh, that helped to ferment it. And then we also then stir those leaves in the Vintners Reserve every, uh, well, once a month, basically. And that kind of adds that sort of silky essence character to the, to the mouthfeel and the wine. And then flavor and aromatically speaking, you know, because we have these different regions uh, that we're drawing grapes from, you know, and you have the Mendocino County area, where you get sort of your peritones and and uh, crisp green apples, and then Sonoma County, Russian River, sort of the ripe apples, then Carneros, the oily viscosity of pear pears, and then Monterey gives you all the lemon and lime tones, mm. and then down in Santa Barbara, you get more of the tropical aspect, the the um, um, pineapple, mostly mango, papaya. So that, that all comes through in the nose and into the palate. And then, you know, and then a kiss of, of toasty oak, but not really that much at all because it's more fruit driven and with nice acid because it grows in the cool climate along the coast of, of California. And then we do let it go through, all of it go through, you know, the secondary fermentation, which is the, you know, the malolactic part. And that's what gives you a little more softness and roundness in the palate, plus, plus a little kiss of, uh, of butter. Not a lot, but just a kiss. You can definitely get that little bit of acid going. Uh, I can just feel it a little bit on the cheeks. It's funny you mentioned. It's funny you mentioned the little kiss of butter because that's always been that thing with with Chardonnay for a lot of people, right? That's that polarizing, you know, debate with with Chardonnay has always been, uh, you know, that kind of little creaminess, little butteriness. Sometimes it's it's to that extreme, and and that always seems to be that you know it's that grape that that people have that love hate relationship with. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, it does cause some conversation. I mean, there's two things that really cause conversation. One is, is that you know, the the degree of butter, and you know, sometimes a, you know, a wine we try not to go that far, uh, where the wine smells like you know that fresh popcorn in a in a movie theater. We don't really want to go all that way, because we enjoy the fruit tones. Right. And then the other sort of debatable topic is the the amount of oak. You know, we're almost entirely barrel fermented in, in real oak barrels, but just the, the new oak component is, is not really that much. It's like 10 or 11%. So, it, it, you know, it's there, but it's not, it's not in the forefront. It's like in a movie, it's a sort you know, supporting, in a supporting role. It is those components that people seem to, like you said, it always seems to be in that conversation. I know a lot of winemakers I talk to, they love Chardonnay. They, they, they treat it like a canvas. It's like a blank canvas that, that some of my favorite wineries up in the Okanagan, you know, one of them, they've, they've got over a dozen different types of, of, um, of labels with, with using Chard. So they love it. You know what I mean? They, they have a, a, a great desire to use it as a blank canvas. So, you know, you have all of those aspects of the winemaking part, and then you also take it back a notch to, to the, you know, the location, the source, the region, the, you know, the dirt, and, you know, what, what valley or what Appalachian is it? What kind of soils do you have? Your orientation, even, 
to the to the clone because there's so many different clones of of Chardonnay. You know, like Clone Four is your standard bear clone, and then you get into sort of the Dijon clones where they're a little bit more perfumey in the aromatics, maybe a little lighter. And then you have the Ruid clones and the Ruid iter, iterations of Ruid 809 and Z, and those are the clones that that almost you know they smell more like Viognier or Muscat than they do Chardonnay, but they are still truly Chardonnay. So a little bit of those Heather and Heather sprinkled around, you know, adds a little bit more excitement. Or you can do 100% uh, Ruid or, or Dijon clone. You know, when I was in, I hate to admit it, but when I was in high school, I went down the path of uh, drinking wine instead of beer. Hmm. It may not have been good wine, but it, it was wine. You know, it was Boone's Farm. I'll go lay it right out there, you know. And then it, then I moved up to Oh, Lancers and Almaden and things like that. And, and um, I ended up down in in uh, uh, Chile. I had been going to school in the universe, University of Utah in Salt Lake City, you know, doing more skiing than studying, and then decided to go down to Chile. And I had no idea that it was a wine country. I was just going there to go skiing. And, and since I was the, you know, the odd man out in America, back in those days who really, you know, who liked wine instead of beer. And I stumbled into that country where you were expected to drink wine with every meal. Uh, not like in America. In fact, you'd sit down at a table. There was already a white wine glass and a red wine glass there. And if you didn't have any wine there, you know, obviously there's something wrong with you. And so I thought, Oh my God, this is, I think I just landed in heaven and really had a chance to, uh, to, you know, to experiment a lot there. You know, I'd experimented in America. You know, I actually went into the French wine area, and the, and I mean, in wines, not physically there, back then, and and then actually had stumbled across some Chilean wines and Argentine wines, and then down in Chile, it was it was a, you know, I was having a ball. Then I met this gal, uh, who whose father, for some reason, took me under his wing, and um, Mr. Ferrer. And he taught me everything about fine wine and fine food, and then wines from around the world. And at the same time with all of that, I had found with some friends a ranch in the sort of semi-south of Chile, in, in the southern end of the grape growing area. The neighbors had, had vineyards and were making wine, like, you know, all their equipment is what you'd see in a in a museum these days, but still, you know, it was the, the, the science or semi-science of making wine. Oh, wow, this is really cool. And then I learned a little about the harvest and winemaking and pruning and things like that and made friends with uh, some of the sales folks down there. And it was just a, a nice way of life. And ultimately I had to leave the country because of the, we had the, the coup, this is back in the seventies. Hmm. And so when I went down, it was during Allende and you know you could do anything you wanted there and never get in trouble and there was no law and then when the coup happened uh with pinochet it went from you know extreme left to extreme right no 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 rights uh no 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 civil liberties at all and you can only live so long like that and then and then i left and came back to um, to america and decided I was going to change my career path, which originally was mining engineering to enology and viticulture. So I got a, I have a degree in, in both of those. Mm. And here we are sitting in a car <laughs> on the way North. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned Boone's cause that's, that's a lot of people's first entry into wine. Um, you know, inexpensive and fruit, fruit forward, you know, to say, to say the least. Right. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. 
So we were talking just before we started recording that you were up in Vancouver back in back, I guess it was like February. I guess that was your last time out of the country out at a wine festival or of some significance, right? Last time out of the country, last time out of the state of California. And so I kind of slid in there just as things were starting to happen. When I got to the airport, that's when they were sort of, you know, segregating you by what country you came from and who, who had to fill out or got interrogated, who had to have their temperature uh, taken. And off to the, you know, the, the, the Vancouver Wine Festival, which I love to go to every year. It's the greatest thing going. And, and had a wonderful time and then came back and then, oh, heck broke loose. Mm. And, and the, you know, the, the world went into a state of chaos. It, it's so sad. I'm hoping it all gets better and we, we can come back up there and visit again in late February. I know that uh, uh, I was always worried that the Canada was going to build a wall up there and not let us Americans uh, in uh, uh, because of our president, but now there's a wall, <laughs> not because of him, uh, you know, cause we, cause we were running, but now they won't let you guys, you guys yeah. won't let us in be just because. <laughs> yeah. I was supposed to this summer, my wife and I were going to go to Portugal for a, a little wine road trip. And we had met one of the general managers of a winery from Portugal at the wine festival. And had it all organized, you know, he was going to be one of our stops along the way. And, uh, and then, yeah, and then, uh, you know, there's been, there's been no travel. I, d I was fortunate enough to go up to the Okanagan a few weeks ago, just as a, as a short, a short little trip, but uh, obviously nothing out of the country for sure. The way of life has changed. You can't go into a, I don't know what you can do there, but here you can't eat inside. It's only outside. But you can eat more and drink in more areas than you ever could before, so that's kind of nice. So, you know, this, the Americans or the Californians are kind of learning how to live more correctly, uh, like they do in, in, you know, on the streets and the, not necessarily the streets, but but the sidewalks, more outdoor tables, and enjoying right. the weather and stuff. Yeah, like that. we've we've really expanded our cafes and and taking over sidewalks and taking over parking, even parking spaces, and just just putting out outdoor patios and stuff and. Uh, I think it's nice. I think it's actually, that part's wonderful. For sure. And, and it's, of course, you know, it's great now because it's summertime, but then that'll be the, that'll be the problem is once the winter hits and uh, especially up here, it gets pretty rainy. Yeah. I encountered that last night because I was in Los Alamos. Um, so today's, uh, today's Tuesday. So Sunday night in, in Los Alamos where I was staying, it was beautiful in the evening. And then last night, it was absolutely freezing. Mm. And, and that was your only choice, sit outside and freeze or starve. So I, I went down the starving path and made up for it today. I'm just curious because I, I did see something. You mentioned about the French oak barrels. Um, and I, I read something on your bio about that. That's pretty, it's, not only is it cool, but it's very impressive that you've kind of gone, gone that, that route. Yeah, we're probably the only company that, that has done that because when we did go into France and uh, with our partners and, and, and built up this beautiful stave mill, uh, the French kind of caught them by surprise and they said, well, there'll be no more American investment uh, in, in that country with, from, from a foreigner. But we really did it to guarantee the quality and the source of the oak 
and so with our with our stave mill, we, in the beginning we were buy, we were doing everything. We were buying you know trees at auction, and then we'd set up a company because if you buy the tree at auction, well, then you got to cut it down, and without hitting another tree or you get fined. But now you have the whole tree, and so you know the bottom the bottom uh, nine to twelve meters gives you three to four stave logs. And then above that, you know, as a general rule of thumb is wood for furniture. And then above that, you're, you're into your firewood. And actually the very first, the lowest three meters is, is too good to be a stay. And that's used for, for veneer. Mm. And so then we get into these big debates. Well, where does the veneer stop and the good barrel start? And then also it became you know, more, more of a hassle to do all that. So now we actually just buy the felled logs in their respective forest. But we keep the oak separate uh, as we were purchasing it. And then when we cut it and split it and go to age it, we break it down by, by forest and also by a grain tightness. And then we stack it and age it in France to get a minimum of two years of the, of the overwintering rains and, and weather, up to three winters. And we keep track of exactly how old that oak is. It has been aged, so 24, 26, 28, 30 months and what have you. And when it's at the appropriate time, then we ship those staves over to America. And the partners that we have, we're 50-50 owners on the stave mill in this French operation, then they do the what's called the conversions for us in Missouri, converting them into, into barrels. And there's more to it than just converting, a you know, putting a bunch of staves together to make a barrel. You then have to toast them. Well, you don't have to, but you should. Right. And so we have over over a hundred ways to toast a barrel to get different flavors out. So it's really been wonderful for us. And so our Grand Reserve and above is all 100% French. Our Vintners Reserve, like you're trying, is about half French and half American. But it really helps us dial into the quality, which we're all about. You know, family-owned, family-run. Always take the high road and do the best you can. And we 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 actually cost a fury over there in the French barrel industry because no one could guarantee none of the other coopers or, 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 or bear, coopers could actually say with conviction or with proof where all of their oak came from. And we could, and then one thing led to another and now they have to do that. And they weren't really very happy about that, but it's better for the industry and on the whole, for sure. I, w I would say that and considering how many, wineries are going organic and, and organic and biodynamic and the certifications you want. And that's, that's kind of, you, that's the thing about wine is you've always, you always want to know as much as you can and you want to know where everything's coming from, especially right. given everyone's, you know, propensity for health consciousness these days. Right. So. Exactly. So we're very blessed that we did that and we started that about the year I started, uh, which was 27, 28 years ago. And now it's just really evolved. And, and we also wanted it not only to guarantee the quality and the age of the oak, because it was kind of questionable back then, but also because we were growing and we didn't want to run out of barrels because we'd set our style as barrel fermented, you know, effectively all uh, barrel fermented, you know, not quite, but 95, 93% barrel fermented. And what would happen if, you know, we started growing even more and we couldn't get the oak? Well, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be good. We have a lot of unhappy, unhappy uh, consumers. Yeah, and that, I, and I mean, and from a taste perspective, as a as a 
you know, as a connoisseur, that French oak with that, like you said, that toastiness in it, it just adds, just adds that level of complexity to the wine. It sure does. It's nice, soft vanillins. We were talking earlier about uh, Chardonnay with kind of everyone's, you know, the whole classic anything but Chardonnay. Now, now a lot of people want to say, you know, always bank on Chardonnay. Always buy Chardonnay, always bring Chardonnay, uh, that ABC, anything but Chardonnay. I think we, that article was written maybe 25 plus years ago. And, and that was back in the day when, for several reasons that came up. One was no one could believe that Chardonnay was, you know, that had that much of a presence and, and thought, oh, this is just a fad and it's going to be over with. Well, it's far from a fad. It's grown and grown. It will always be uh, number one uh, in, in my lifetime and many lifetimes uh, more. And then there was, uh, uh, you know, people thinking, well, Chardonnay's, you know, too buttery or too oaky. Well, I think that that what happened with that aspect of it is, you know, if you don't have good Chardonnay, truly coastal Chardonnay, and you're sort of in, you're in a climate that's too warm, well, you will, you can get the, the, the sugar or the bricks, but you don't have the flavor and you've lost your acid. So if you have a sort of a simple non-fruit driven uh, white wine, you have to do something to it to make it stand out. And I think my battery's going to go here in a minute. Uh, but anyways, oh. the, they would put a lot of oak on it and then they put a lot of butter on it and that kind of, you know, sort of ruined it. But I think all that's been washed away. And it, and it's, it's one of those grapes that it seems it's so like of any other grape, uh, some grapes have fads, right? You know, Riesling or right. Riesling or Pinot or Merlot or Syrah. They, there seems to be not, not, I don't want to call them fads, but they come and go sometimes. But Chardonnay has always been around, you know, whether, like, again, whether you love it or hate it, it's always been around. It's always been in the, in the, it's always been the number one. It, and it always will be. I think we're going to leave it there for now. Thanks for listening. For more wine conversation and podcast updates, you can follow us on Instagram at Ian's Wine Truths. Check out our website for great photos of our guests. Friendsofthevine.podbean.com Take care. Have a blast for me.